Outcast is a no-nonsense podcast for the strategy community. No buzzwords, no bullshit. We are here to explore the true makeup of our society. In every episode, we interview an expert that helps us think critically about our audiences. This podcast is brought to you by Think Twice and Groupthink as part of the Open Your Mind series. Welcome back to the second episode of Outcast. You've got Ronak here. I'm Perla. And I'm Helena. Last time we spoke about how society is exploring diverse ways of creating families. And today we're back to speak about family dynamics again. We're talking to each other because we're gradually seeing that society is starting to explore more forms of family structure. These forms might not be mainstream yet, but it's emerging and it's interesting for strategists to be aware of the new family structures that are developing around us. Some may take decades to mature. It's not an overnight thing. And it takes time for us to see the effects, to see if it works, and ultimately, if society accepts them. But so doesn't mean it's not happening and impacting culture. The immediate implications of this is that in a very near future, we may have to adapt how we portray families. I mean, let's remember that, for example, divorced parents are now 100% normal, but it was still almost a a taboo subject a generation ago. So things are moving and there's always a risk for brands to wait on society to evolve first before reflecting it. So let's understand the new dynamics that are shaping families. Today we'll be talking with Deborah Linton. Deborah's a journalist. She's written for The Guardian, Vogue and The Times, amongst other titles. We came across Deborah's work when an article on co-parenting caught our eye. And what's co-parenting, you may ask? It's not just a running storyline about all the couples on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. It's not even something that would make you a guest on the Oprah Winfrey show now. Because about 58% of unmarried mothers would consider raising a child with someone who isn't a romantic partner. A phenomenon has now emerged where people meet on a matching website to become parents together, but not to be a romantic couple. It's a really new take on family because it challenges the idea of romance as the foundation of it. In the grand scheme of things, co-parenting is probably still a niche, but there are hundreds of thousands signed up to those websites. So we wanted to understand more. Is romance dead? Are we getting into an age of parental pragmatism? Also, Deborah wrote about surrogacy, especially couples asking a friend to be their surrogate. This again changes the role, challenges the role of parents and the family structure and also the role of love in parenthood. So we chatted about this too. So buckle up for this episode. As usual, we're going to explore new trends from the fringe of society and understand how that impacts broader audiences so we can find richer and more complex, fertile ground for our client briefs. Now let's welcome Deborah. Yeah, we're super excited to have Deborah joining us today. Um, And you've heard a bit about her in the intro and we're just going to kick off straight with the interview so we're going to run through a few few questions on family structures and co-parenting for Deborah so starting off with the first question from Helena. So in your experience of working with new family structures Deborah uh, why do some people decide that uh, the traditional romantic relationship isn't for them? I think it's because those options are available to people. So if you went back historically 40 years, you might see the beginning of um, sort of single mother families, lesbian mother families entering the mainstream. But 
the way that people perceived anything that was outside the kind of nuclear family structure was as as odd as unusual they didn't know how to take it on you know then fertility treatments came in and um you know it was very unusual to be an IVF baby um it was unusual to start a family in any way that wasn't in inverted commas the norm and I think when you ask why you know do people make those decisions science allows them to um freedoms civil liberties allow them to the way that our society and our government is structured to um allow people to have these options mean that they can you know society has begun to explore what works in a family setting and what works for different people um and you know it's not just we're not just in a place now where there's one option if you're straight one option if you're gay you know there's multiple options for different people according to what fits with their morals and their ambitions for themselves and their children. Interesting about that is this idea of there not being not just one new norm, but multiple new norms and how that sort of expands uh, for various people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm always really interested in kind of what's, and my editors too, in what's emerging as something new that maybe in the mainstream we're not talking about or we're not fully aware of it and 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 that is part of society's awakening to what potentially thousands of people could be doing out there um you know could be raising their children in a certain way could um be partnering in a certain way and you know it's not an overnight thing it it takes we have seen it literally takes decades a generation for it you know to see whether it works what the effects of these different ways of familying parenting are and for society I suppose to accept them because even those which have been around for 40 odd years now you know when researchers started looking at this on are still you know they're seen as much more regular much more commonplace but there's still you know areas where you know they're not they're still not treated as inverted commas normal yes because because i think sometimes within regulation it takes a while for various parenting structures to be acknowledged but also going back to your point around culture uh it can sometimes be uh it's not often that you see um, some alternative families uh, represented in say the media mm-hmm. and advertising new movies for instance yeah um when i was writing piece on co-parenting which kind of brought us together to have this conversation you know I was looking at representations and and the one that stands out for co-parenting was um, Madonna and Rupert Everett in the next next best thing which was a massive flop Mm. Um, but you know that co-parenting for example is something which is not commonly represented in um, the media or movies. Surrogacy mm. as well is not commonly represented in the media or movies. Um, it... One exact yeah, that just popped in my mind because I love the TV um, series so much. Mm. Uh, love Life yeah. with Anna Kendrick. There was, a, yeah, oh, I love, love that. It. <laughs> love that TV series. Um, that's an example of yeah. one. And, um, but it did start off as a romantic relationship first. 
if memory serves me right so it yeah. was like actually we're not but it that compatible but it did but I you know when I was researching co-parenting I came you know we chose three for the piece but I came across loads of different mm-hmm. examples of routes people had taken and one of the ones that was in that was romantic to start with um but the thing is that that stands out as an example in love life or, or mm-hmm. the Rupert Everett Madonna flop does because they're rare and the reason that it was you know I suppose interesting enough to cover you know in an article which takes months to put together and you know it's kind of 3,000 words in in a a big supplement is because it's still more unusual it's still something that the mainstream isn't aware of so you know if you if you think of other types of different family forms you know divorced parents you would never you wouldn't dedicate 3,000 words to that now because it's 100% normal but you know a couple of generations ago it was still almost taboo yeah for sure it's really good that we're seeing those references now as well and I remember when watching it I was like oh wow that's so good that they've done that um just like yeah it was good and it was done in quite um what was really nice about that was that it was done in a like an authentic way it didn't come from a broken place it came from an acceptance that they weren't romantically compatible but actually this was something they can do I, I liked that representation for that reason and uh, one thing that, that um, I do also think wonder and, and, and that is um, what with uh, you know, people's life expectancy sort of getting longer um, people sort of less likely to um, sort of consider marrying early or will perhaps not to do so at all and and then there's the fact that you know um one in two marriages um can end up in divorce there is this there is a, almost a bit of a breaking up of this sort of idea of one family for life and um within that context it, may, it does make you wonder whether to some degree pa- pragmatism uh might be sort of winning over passion in this situation i think pragmatism is a huge part of it and i think you know, when I interviewed people who've set up co-parenting sites, who obviously have a commercial interest in it, but also when you then interviewed the people who were doing it about why, pragmatism was a massive part. They didn't want to, so there were a couple of things. They, these were people who generally did, which not everyone does, and, and that's fine, still believe that a child has something to benefit from having um, a male and a female influence in their life. Um But they were people who were saying, look, pragmatically, I am of a certain age. This is what I want to do now. Or biologically, this is the time when I need to be doing this. I'm not in love with someone. Yeah. And and all of them cited that stat. Yeah. You know, 50% Mm -hmm. of marriages approximately, I, I don't know the exact, end in divorce. Most people have seen or felt the impact of a divorce, if not in their own family home, then near to it. Um you know, really, do I, do, does there need to be romance, you know? So I think pragmatism is a massive part of it. So how do you think this, that um, going for this uh, uh, kind of approach to co-parenting impacts the parental roles? You know, do they function in a different way? Um, do children interact with it differently? What I garnered from the people I spoke to was that they were much more considered. So in the same way as when people go through a divorce where you have to determine what roles and what you know allocation of roles or quantity of time each parent is with a child this was the starting point 
there was no animosity mm. um, when it started. So, the, you know, which does inform sometimes how that plays out in a, in a divorce household scenario. They were very um, considered, informed decisions about, you know, what role each parent would play, how they would complement one, one another, um, that sort of thing. I think what, what really, something that really stuck with me was one of the couples who had tried, they, they had been set up by um, a co-parenting website, but it was all of the sites tend to offer an option for um, romance if you want it. Okay, and then if you, if both mm. parents, if both people want to try at romance, they can see if they're romantically compatible. This couple had done that, determined that they weren't, and decided they still definitely wanted to go ahead and, and go with and go and co-parent with one another because they very much admired the qualities they wanted to see in in a parent for their child. And I remember the lady saying to me, "You know, when my co-parent drops my son off." He comes in and we have tea and we do all these lovely things together. And she said, I know so many families where, um, you know, because there's been divorce or, or whatever, you know, we're not, you know, plenty of divorces are amicable. But for one reason or another, dad, dad stays in the car and the kid doesn't experience that at all. And it, that mm. I felt very poignant in terms of mm, how much can actually be achieved if you really sit down and consider this before yeah. you had before you become parents yeah because i think what's really fascinating about that is this the uh the level of sort of teamwork that's involved within that because you know uh, i'd imagine that one of the sort of one of the examples of uh, of arguments for um the parents being romantic parts i've heard before is that the child gets to see what love looks like playing out but actually um, there's a lot to be said for the uh, collaboration and uh, teamwork and considered thought that comes with that uh, uh, platonic um, parenting approach. Yeah, well. that same lady said, um, yeah, my kid doesn't see mummy and daddy kissing and cuddling on the sofa, but he sees two people who love each other in a different way, who are very respectful of one another, who love the child, who both love that child. Um I think, you know, the conversation around this would be different if we were in a society where we didn't have such a high rate of, of broken marriages. Um, but, mm. and, you know, it's important to consider as well, actually, because this is a reasonably new phenomenon, you know, which we can come to, researchers are, are just beginning to look at it, you know, and, and generationally, mm it's going to be like another 10 years or so before you can say, okay, what is the actually the impact on this child mm -hmm. now that they've turned 18? Yeah. So one of the questions that researchers will, are waiting to see play out is, you know, does taking romance out of the equation, you know, how does that impact a child for, for the good or the bad or both? So we can't answer that yet. We don't, we just don't know the answer. No one can mm. claim to, but you can look at the reasons why people are going into it and you can definitely see that there could be potential for a more stable home yeah. environment. On that point yeah. of there being more of a trend towards co-parenting, can you expand a bit on the rise of platonic co-parenting, the benefits of it um, and what do you think people will do in the future around co-parenting? Co-parenting, if you want to talk about the scale of it, there are 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are on co-parenting websites, which are websites which people join up to. It's basically like Tinder. One guy described it as it's like Tinder, but for people in their 30s. It's basically where you can match with someone who wants what you do, which is a child, without necessarily the romance. Um, And, you know, I, I would say that I was quite surprised by the scale of those numbers. However, it is not something that I think particularly exists in the mainstream consciousness. I think people think of co-parenting as what happens after you divorce, not an elective decision that you step into. If you want to look at it where it stands compared to kind of other family forms, I think the point that it's something that researchers have only in the past, it was around 2015 or so, um, that researchers at Cambridge, which Um, has a unit which really leads on this internationally began to notice this as a trend and began looking at it and they did an early study and they are only now doing kind of an in-depth study where they work with families over time so it's only just entering the mainstream as you know something that people are electively quite clearly doing where did it come from? Actually, um, there's lots of people on websites now who are um, heterosexual looking to do this. Um, but um, this has been going on in gay communities for years um, and people have done it with friends. And certainly, you know, that that was, those are decisions that people have been making for a long time to say, okay, we're two dads got a friend who's female and she's maybe single and she she would like to be a mum and we would like to be parents and you know people have been making those connections for a long time kind of informally um whether it's through networks or um friendships and there's still loads of people you know a lot of those numbers on the sites that I told you about will or will be I, I I can't remember what the stats are exactly I um but there's a lot of heterosexual and a lot of homosexual people doing it. So it, it crosses it crosses demographics. Obviously, age-wise, it's, it's fairly confined to a certain space. People tend to find that the women are in their 30s. The men might be a bit older, 40s or even 50. Um, but um, it's been around for a long time, but I think it's just becoming something that, yeah, that straight people are seeing as an elective considered option. In terms of the future, um, I think the the feeling is that this has got quite a way to go. Some of those websites have been around for quite a few years. Um, but um, yeah, I would say it's some, something that will, will grow, um, whether people find that it works or not is to be seen but um it's it's yeah it's definitely i think it's definitely emerging and going to emerge further as a as a recognized family form for straight people that's so interesting so it's a trend across demographics Mm -hmm. and i guess because there is this value in it as we've touched upon i remember like um my friend's been through a breakup recently and she's like i just don't want to have children in like a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. like it's a conversation coming up with friends as well I think now that it um has them before yeah, what age are like, you approximately 
I'm 27. Right. So, but it makes sense. Like it's when people are beginning to consider these things. A lot of the people I spoke to were in the 30s and the people yeah. who found one of the guys who founded one of the websites, it came from a conversation with friends about being sick of dating, being like, you know, mm-hmm. actually I am of an age now where I just want to have a kid. Um, and I think, I think it's really interesting as well that, you know, what do you look for in a co-parent? You have a lot of the, these people are having a lot of the conversations that you might have way further down in a relationship about like the, the algorithms on these sites match people by their interest in how they want to educate their kids, whether they're religious, um, what their belief in, in medicine is. Um, that's particularly, you know, yeah. in America in terms of healthcare and stuff, you know, you're aligning people by algorithms on their morals and their kind of alignments and it means that when you meet you're you're already compatible on many of the areas where people may come to disagree once a child arrives we're trying to take away that emotional romantic baggage so it's a stable family environment but in reality does this work like is it have you seen cases where actually someone does get romantically attached or I know it's quite case by case dependent no, but it it's gone in you've you already just like with a marriage you already see different versions of it working or not so there were a number of people I spoke to um when determining who to include in the future where it hadn't worked there was one lady who we did include um because I thought it was very important to present a very real version of this. You know, nothing is universally shiny or universally rubbish. Um, so there are situations where it doesn't work. There's one lady who said it's now a living nightmare. She um, She's quoted in the piece. She It started as co-parenting with a long-standing friend. Everything was sort of well-organized, felt like it was, you know, all all ticked off and now is in a horrific custody battle over this child because they have fallen out um, over the way things panned out, what one another's expectations were, I guess in the same way that you would a marriage. And and her whole purpose of getting into it was she was like, didn't want to go through a divorce type experience and she, she wanted to do it this way. And and now she is. Then your flip side is um, another couple and um, who fell in love. And the people who run the websites told me like this, you know, this happens quite frequently. Um, and when I asked why she thinks she thought that they'd ultimately fall in love, you know, the response was something along the lines of, you know, choosing a parent, someone to raise a child with it is like falling in love. It's just not necessarily romantic. You know, you are choosing someone for qualities that you admire in them for arguably the most important reason or one of the most important reasons if your ambition is to have a child. Um, But they ended up realizing that all the reasons they chose one another as a co-parent were why they ultimately fell romantically in love too. So I think, you know, there's clearly going to be many different types of outcome just as there would in any Mm. other relationship. And I guess you're like affectionate in different ways in a sense, like someone you have a child with, you're going to like love on some level and respect them. And mm-hmm. out of that can a lot grow of romantic love. Yeah. I would... And it's a partnership. Like, yeah. And I you think you want to be partners with the person you have a child with. Right. I think that 
that's exactly it. I think it is out of that respect that romantic love can grow, um, you know, as well as sort of choosing characteristics that you admire. But yeah, it is. The, I think the ones that work or will work will be about, and I, and I believe this would feed into kind of what the academics were saying as well, will be about how those par- people parent together. So, you know, their relationship as a team um, will impact hugely whether it works or not. It also depends what your, your determination of what working is. You know, an academic whose interest is in, you know, f- what family forms work would, would say, okay, well, does that child grow up to be, you know, happy, mentally healthy, sound, emotionally stable, and so forth, that that would be their determination. If your determination is, did it work for the, the people, the parents who signed up to do this with one another, then, you know, it's pretty black and white, isn't it? Either they're still co-parenting and happy or they're not. Yeah. And would you say for the co-parents that don't move into a romantic relationship, is it purely functional for them, this partnership? Or do you think was there any cases of it being an affection, affectionate in new ways, like you're talking about respect um, and love for each other and partnership? So it's hot. So that's the one aspect. It's interesting because if I think about the three that we included in the article, which were not just that they were the most powerful stories, but felt like they were most representative of the experiences I was reading and learning about. You know, one had broken down, one became romantic and then there was the one which um, was, you know, kind of by the letter of a co-parenting relationship. And they had such affection and such respect for each other. The kind of affection and respect that I think any child would wish their parents to have for one another. I don't know how that will pan out. Their child was young. I, 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 can't, I think he was four. Um, you know, I don't know how that will pan out, but they had such a cl- they had such clear boundaries. They had such respect. They respected one another's role to each other and to the child. They clearly cared about each other. I remember the woman saying, you know, one of the reasons she chose him as a co-parent was that she knew he would always be there for both of them. Um, so it was very much considered as you know, not just for the benefit of a child, like what will work in a family setting. And they do family things together. And they said, you know, they both have new partners. Those partners have children of their own. And they all came together for Christmas. Um, You know, there was a huge amount of affection. It just wasn't romantic affection. Yeah, that's completely understandable. Um, And how about uh, how these co-parents or partnerships explain it? to their other relationships like explaining to friends colleagues parents I know your article touched on that and I thought was quite interesting yeah I thought that was super interesting too when people were explaining this I think there's still um I mean think about this as well of it was incredibly hard to get people to actually take part in the article I, I just spent months finding people I'm to the point where at one point the editor was like do you want to you know we can we can kind of ditch it if you think it's not going to work and I was like no no we we have to carry on because I thought it's a fascinating topic and I loved the stories that were coming out of it but that says something doesn't it like people don't want to have their names on the record so two out of the three case studies changed their names um which obviously we you know made clear in the piece um a lot of people did not want to 
go public. So I had loads of websites who would say to me, we have so many people, we've asked this question before, no one wants to talk, we'll ask again, but I don't think you'll hear from anyone. And, you know, that was the case. People are very scared of judgment. People didn't tell their families immediately. Some did. The couple that fell in love, they were awesome in terms of how very open they were and unafraid of, of what others thought. And then, you know, there was the other couple who um, who I talked about who were kind of very much kind of, you know, co-parenting by the book sort of thing with the little boy. And um, they they were really afraid of, be, of, uh, of what others would think. And, you know, actually said to this day, um, they, they faked a romantic relationship when they got pregnant. They started with a bit of romance, then it broke up. But for a long time after that, they pretended that they were still living together in a romantic relationship and they'd fallen pregnant and they had the baby and then it wasn't right because they came from quite small C conservative backgrounds. They were concerned about how it would be received. And I, speaking to the academics, that is very common, um, not just within families, but within wider networks. And it's something that every new family form faces um, when they emerge into the mainstream. And I think that's really sad because I think that it we... It is so sad. such as parental expectations, isn't it? I feel like I've seen so many sitcoms where that's the storyline, like, oh, we've got it, we're, we're seeing my mum and dad, let's just pretend we're still together, right. like it's easier. Right, so it's definitely generational, but they are worried from peers as well. So there's people who... This was interesting. So there is definitely a very, like, straight middle-class kind of demographic that have maybe spent a long time on careers and realized they do want kids and it's getting a bit late and they're going on these sites you know in a perfectly considered way um but it you know they're in sort of jobs so I was told there's loads of lawyers there's loads of um quite high profile or senior I should say like civil servants um there's people who work in the media on these sites doctors who don't want professionally people to know that this is what they've done so it's not just generational judgment they're afraid of which I think you know feels wrongly normal but it's just how generations play out people are afraid of judgment from peers and I and for sure the biggest fear that these families have and researchers have is how that plays out as these kids start going to school like not only do these kids not see people like themselves um but they um you know they their family environment may be misunderstood by teachers or other parents and, and that sort of thing. And again, that isn't unique to co-parenting. It, it has happened. It's like we were saying earlier, you know, it's happened. IVF babies, you know, oh, my children are IVF. I will happily tell them that they're IVF. You know, I think years ago, people have been like, oh, you know, you don't want to actually know. Adopted children, the same, you know, um, Kids with two dads, kids with two mums, kids who, you know, born by surrogacy, who have had an egg donor, all these different ways that we now make families, um, they all encounter this fear of judgment. And that is that is probably the biggest threat to them from what I've yeah, learned. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it's interesting you're mentioning, you know, friendships and families because we know that actually from your articles that there are, there are more and more people you know, despite this um, pressure from the outside world, there are more and more people asking friends to bear their children as surrogates. Do you know why that why that is in particular? Um, so I, I absolutely loved 
looking at that topic because <laughs> oh it just I mean I literally cried in every single interview which I do do more oh, frequently wow. than I should but you know you're letting fertility journeys are incredibly hard and I know that from personal experience and I've ended up probably because of that writing a lot of fertility stories so they're always quite emotionally loaded when you bring friendship into the equation and the kind of selfless friendship where someone says my best friend can't carry a baby I'm going to go through pregnancy which is no mean feat I know lots of women do it but it's hard I'm going to do that for them it's incredibly moving and it's incredibly powerful why are more people going to friends I don't know what the stats are around whether people are using friends as surrogates or others as surrogates but I can tell you what people said for their reasoning for going to friends which was, you know, typically when people want to use a surrogate, and again, this is more possible because of science has opened up, because laws are opening up, although the laws around surrogacy are painfully outdated, but that's, you know, perhaps another discussion for another time. Um, People found the process of, it's very hard to want a baby and not to be able to have one. And the way that you might traditionally find a surrogate is to go to a networking event. You know, there's, there's some amazing charities and networkers that, that put these things on. And, and it's literally like, it's like speed dating. Like you turn up, um, there are rules around it. Like you're, you're not allowed to approach the surrogate. The surrogate has to approach you and things like that. You know, literally, it could be in a pub or a room or something. But that's what happens. And you start to sort of form slow relationships with someone who you know might feel like a good fit and actually the people I spoke to said it just felt too scary and too impersonal with something that was yeah and because it's interesting because I think I wonder if there's a perception that using someone you know could complicate it yeah, I mean, they say that for business and they say that for living situations, mm, don't they? So that's why this this is really interesting, because surely this is something you really wouldn't want to mix friends and family, you know, friends of the family you choose. Yeah, so, it's you a know, great what happens point. When that kind of mixes I hadn't thought, together. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in, in such frank terms in terms of, you know, yeah, you do say that with work and and you would always think twice, wouldn't you, in, in a work scenario about doing that. But I think. Um, I think you know, when you go through surrogacy, there's so much screening, there is so much counselling. So you go through medical screening, you know, both sides of the partnership go through medical screening, you go through a lot of counselling. And the counselling is, you know, checking all aspects. So uh, one of the families I interviewed, the friend who was going to be the surrogate, already had three little boys, the sort of questions extend to, well, how would you feel if this was a little girl, as in, would you be able to give give her back you know um so they get they explore everything and that happens whether it's a friend or whether it's a stranger to start with and ultimately if you're you know and no one would let us you know ethically a fertility specialist should not let a surrogacy go ahead unless everything feels clear as crystal in terms of you know people's safety from a counseling point of view and their emotional states and and attitudes going into it and I think if you're process maybe you're overcoming anything that the rest of us might perceive as as risky of doing it with a friend you know this it's so much bigger in a way I suppose and I think 
yeah, I think that familiarity and that comfort um, maybe is appealing. Look, there'll, there'll be a lot. My piece set out very much to explore that particular phenomenon, that particular. It was only about friends who are surrogates. So I didn't sit down and, yeah. and look through loads of other people who do it very happily and very successfully with someone they didn't know. Um, so I'm sure that works very, very well. Um, but um, I... I think it's interesting to dispel myths around how it how it might work out because the stories of friendship that underpin those were nothing but beautiful. Oh, good! That's so lovely to hear. And um, and and in that, how does that bond and and using friends for this reason um, transform the bond between biological elective parents and also the child? Like, how does that family construct pan out? So. Again, the people that I met, and um, it's interesting, some some interviews, I mean, especially over the past year, I've had no choice, but some interviews are fine to do over the, the phone or a video call. But these ones, I really wanted to go and sit with these friends together with the baby and just see what it was like and how they all interacted. And obviously, I, I met people when the babies were young. So um, one of them, the baby was like four months and another of the families, the baby was maybe he was about six months I think so I don't know how it's going to pan out later in their lives and you know I'm not an expert to to sort of say this is how surrogacy generally works out but what I saw in terms of the the family construct around them was very much a feeling that this is your wider family so there was no question whatsoever about who the biological parent was or who the act you know who the parent was um you know if if that's kind of what what you're wondering um it's it's such I feel it's so and all of us wonder that that's why it's interesting it is something that if you don't know you want to understand how does that work how does that feel none of the women who were surrogates that I spoke to went into this with anything other than a very clear impression of, of what they were doing and why they were doing it they didn't want another child this wasn't their child you know, they, yeah. they, you know, this was, this was a physical act. The same way that someone would, and someone used this analogy, you might donate a kidney, right? It's, you know, for someone yeah, you so love. True. Okay, your best friend needs a kidney, and you're a match. You're giving them the kidney. Okay, it's, it was that kind of thing. And then what the child appeared to have in the situations that I encountered was a wider, loving family where the children of the woman who carried the baby were almost more like cousins or something you know like they knew that they were part of this you know very special team of people we're talking about teams again but they did use that word who who brought this child into the world it's almost like a godparent a little bit just like somebody has a good analogy yeah so well what's really interesting about this is just this sense that there is a future of family that is sort of um you know becoming more diverse and becoming sort of more involved. Um, do you, you know, what other sort of evolution do you think that we can expect to come from this trend? I mean, I wish I knew the answer to that because I, then I would know what I should be looking at for an article. Um, I think it's really hard to know, to be honest, but I think the way that we find out is looking at where where areas are opening up in science or areas are opening Mm. up in um, regulation or 
illegally or what have you for example surrogacy laws are due to be overhauled and that is massively overdue and I wonder whether that will just open things up more for people in that regard um you know I, yeah. I don't know what the next family form is and actually even a researcher you know they would it takes it took like I said you know it took quite a number of years of this happening before researchers were like oh this is and these are people who know this inside out we should be looking at this so I don't know what the next family form is but I I think I you know I do I you know I, I do look to a place where these things aren't unusual and we understand that this stuff Mm. is happening and they're not rarities and you know it's not an unusual thing for in a child's class at school there to be kids there who are you know it's not just oh which we see I think in lots of classes now so there'll be parents kids who come from your 2.4 children there'll be kids whose parents are divorced there'll be kids who've got two mums or two dads and I I you know, think about my own kids, I don't think they find that at all unusual. I think that's very normal to them. I think in my generation, because of my parents' generation, that still would have been slightly unusual, or it might not have been, um, you know, so common. Um, But I, I don't know what the next family form is, but it would be very nice to see us in a place. And I don't know how long this takes where, it's not unusual that an advert appears on TV and it's it's a talking point because it has two black fathers in it or because it has a boy with um, just a mother and, you know, whatever it might be, all these different demographics and, and diversities that, you know, still make waves because they're still quite new. They're not happening regularly enough. Um it would be nice to get to yeah. a place where fam- multiple family forms are not even blinked at. Yes, I, I definitely um, agree with that, you know, because, uh, you know, particularly, uh, I, I, I was actually looking back, thinking about your article and uh, just noticing how um, with surrogacy, the sort of uh, impact of celebrities mm-hmm. um, exploring it uh, was something that sort of really made it sort of go sort of mainstream in terms of culture. Um, and, you know, potentially that might be one of the things that uh, um, makes it be a trend that people aren't sort of uh, having to treat as a talking I point, think, that it is just yeah. another normal way of doing it. I things. think that's a really important point. I'd forgotten about that aspect of, of the piece. Um, but, yeah, again everyone that I interviewed um, in terms of sort of the people who run sites or the research, what have you, pointed to the fact that it was, it's celebrities who change things. So I remember asking, you know, will co-parenting become mainstream? And it was like, yet to be seen, but there are, I was actually offered at one point, and then he sort of dipped out, was offered an interview. It would have been um, under a different name with a British male celebrity who was a co-parent with someone, but was too, ultimately didn't want to take part. I'm Um, desperate to know who it is. (laughs) I I don't even know. I don't even know. I was never, you know, I I don't know. They bottled it before they would, um, they would do it. So um, people are doing this just the way as, 
Do you remember when like J-Lo had the twins and stuff like that? Yes. Or like Beyonce. And everyone's mm. immediately like, ooh, was it IVF? Like, was it not? Like, it's actually mad that we still have that conversation. And like, Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian's surrogate was so followed around. And followed pictured. around. But yeah. like, and, and yeah. Elton John's surrogate. But it was when the, the discourse on surrogacy changed when they spoke very openly and repeatedly and a number of celebrities, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker used a surrogate. There was a slightly more unusual then. That was, you know, over a decade ago. But a number of very high profile celebrities have now spoken about using surrogates and it's becoming norm. OK, um, so everyone in the co-parenting conversation was saying when a celebrity, a big celebrity talks about co-parenting, it become it starts to seep into the public consciousness as a normal thing. It's almost like influencers, like they're not meaning yeah. to be. Obviously, <laughs> that kind of no, influence. It, it literally, it is works. that. Like I don't know, I don't know. You guys are in marketing. You'll know better than me. I don't know what it is with the the, the human psyche that we need to see an example of it from someone like Kim Kardashian instead yeah. of our next door neighbor. I actually always think of. Um... Sorry, I, I actually think of Courtney Kardashian. <laughs> I'm just showing my Kardashian knowledge. Please, let's talk about <laughs> with that. With co-parenting. Yeah. But I get, that's an example again, because I think maybe d- different types of co-parenting is like normalized in different ways. Like if you're, if you were in a romantic partnership and then as divorced parents, you're co-parenting. I think that is normalized. I think that's normal now. And let's be honest, Courtney and Scott are a great example of yeah. it. <laughs> but they are (laughs) but people were surprised weren't they because actually like the press or whoever else are looking for examples of them not being they expect you to get divorced and not be a good example of co-parenting but they were and loads of other people will be too I have I know plenty of people who are okay but but you're right it's still the aspect of co-parenting that is normal is where it comes from a relationship that we can identify with first. So it feels a bit more normal because it started romantically. I feel like that what's happening is being normalised because there are these celebrities that are going through IVF, that are going through surrogacy, and it is seeping gradually um, into our society for us mere mortals. And it, it, it should be reflected in the advertising, which is exactly why we do, I mean, we do this podcast yeah and why this episode is so important. So thank you so much, Deborah, for this amazing insight. No, it's, it, thanks Thanks for having me on. It's, it's Modern Families is probably my favourite topic to write about. So I just I just think these... It's been so interesting. Good. Thank you. Yeah, we could hear it in um, your answers. So thanks so much. It's going to be a really interesting episode for everyone. Okay, if you listened to our last episode, we hope that it's clear now that a typical family just isn't a nuclear family anymore. Last time we explored how dated the nuclear family model is, but we didn't challenge the idea of love as the foundation of family. Families come in all shapes and forms, as we now know, but we kind of just assumed they were all based on romantic relationships. For sure. I think that's why Deborah was so interesting to us. Um, We like the idea that pragmatism is sort of making a way into family structure. Like you always think that family choices are based on 
romance, passion, love. So you fall in love with someone um, and you decide to have a child together. Whereas I think this interview really challenged that. Um, even when you um, when you we talk to parents that currently have children, they talk and reminisce about their romantic, you know, when they met their partner. They never even considered, you know, how this person would be as a parent. You don't think about that when you're all swept up in it. It's just really interesting to kind of, uh, be introduced to the fact that maybe love isn't always enough when it comes to you know parenting a child yeah for sure and I think in some ways it is becoming a bit more functional in terms of like well definitely with co-parenting if you're on like an app to meet someone you are asking specific questions about like values like what school you'd want them to go to like really like functional questions in a way um, women so yeah, look for um what they want their children to have in partners, like the psychology of relationships. It's just interesting because men don't do the same. Mm-hmm. It's weird that actually when you strip it back, we're kind of just all like animals. <laughs> we're just instincts. That's very true. We're all animals securing that bag. So also in terms of co-parenting brands so we did a little google um, and a lot of the brands around co-parenting is like offering advice um how you like apps on communicating with your partner about children's schedules and activities so again you see that like functional relationship coming through a bit more and we were thinking about how other brands could get involved for example like if you're browsing john lewis baby is there anything about co-parenting in like the early stages of pregnancy and that's section like could they have like a book on co-parenting or could they like offer advice and tips to the partners of like a co-parenting relationship definitely and when we think back to what romance is now and and how it's evolved it's almost tick boxy and automated just like a lot of things in modern life we make initial decisions about who we meet and who we spend time with very rationally and dating apps also offer a much more pragmatic approach to matchmaking than we've been used to in the past potentially impacting how we see or relate to love and relationships altogether yeah, yeah. And I think that co-parenting and surrogacy are still a small share of family structures. But um, the idea of pragmatic relationship is really interesting, as you say, um, uh, and particularly from a brand and marketing perspective, you know, because I think, you know, could brands start to play a different role in families that dri- is driven by pragmatism rather than love? I mean, that said, it's not an either or all, all scenario. I think that uh, one of the things that really comes through when I'm reading on the topic is how the co-parents still have real like tremendous warmth towards each other um, and a sense of respect that comes through taking that sort of shared journey um, into parenthood. So I think there's loads to explore emotionally, even without um, the romantic side. Um, but it's an opportunity to, um, you know, for brands to sort of explore that in more detail. So uh, I was taking a look around and saw a really interesting example by IKEA um, in France, which there was a son of divorced parents. And it was quite cheeky because he was kind of tricking his par- each of his parents uh, who lived apart into making him delicious meals uh, with IKEA kitchen utensils. <laughs> so that's kind of this feature of the thing. And uh, um, But brands, you know, have become better at representing sort of more diverse types of families in terms of say kind of race uh, and same-sex unions so yeah it's um, really interesting that you know we could explore um, new structures too uh, because they at this point they still emphasize uh, that romantic bonding as um, the 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 main sort of central piece but you know could we um, go uh, beyond that in terms of the way that families operate 
Yeah, definitely. Because I guess in ads, we're always trying to pull on heartstrings as we know that that makes the biggest impact. So the question really is, you know, is there a way we can be functional and have an emotional hook that we all strive for? I mean, Deborah was talking about how there is a love that comes from, you know, mutual respects, for example, that that's beyond love. So is it about showing these kind of qualities in relationships instead of just romantic love? Yeah, I definitely think so, because, you know, there's a huge amount of affection in many relationships, not only romantic ones. I think that, I know I read this uh, Metro example of these two friends that decided to marry each other. And it was, you know, one of them was uh, heterosexual, the other one was gay. um, And, you know, it's that sense of just real uh, uh, like really deep friendship that really came through in that piece. So yeah, it just made me think whether there, is, there could be an opportunity to show that sort of those deep bonds that rely on respect and dignity and appreciation instead of romance alone. Is that like that? Is that that classic um, promise that all friends make? Like, what if we if we're fifty and none, yeah. neither of us are married, like let's promise to marry each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally agree. And in doing that, we're showing we're showing more images in the media of the respect, dignity and appreciate the appreciation that people should expect in their lives as well, which is great. Not just romantic love, because it gives us an opportunity to really raise people's standards and shape culture in mm. a way as well in the long mm. term. I think it's quite nice as well, because it shows that other forms of relationships can just be as important as um, romantic love and can grow into something that is like familial love because um, you could potentially have a child with someone you just like mutually respect and that you're friends with yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah we found this topic super interesting um, if any of you listening want to talk to us on social about the examples that you've seen or stories that you've heard that you're interested in or articles that you've read we'd really love to hear hey, so you. thank you and join us next time we'll be exploring new uh, other atypical family structures and relationships that we should be paying attention to in Adland. Bye for now.